Ryan Mancini. I thought I was going to do a voice and be like, get your ass the Maws on life. And well, there you go. Now you have it. Uh, joining with me, not Arnold Schwarzenegger, but a different person whose name begins the letter A. Uh, yes, it's uh, Andrew Martinez, the uh, the co-host, uh, not a said replacement, but the co-host. <laughs> and uh, I have no accents up my sleeve uh i guess you know in the age of tiktok you know the accent party trick is way gone so uh i can't help you there <laughs> well it's funny you bring that up because when when we pre-recorded next week's show with uh soon to be returning guest deja mcgee i remember on her first episode she was urging me to get a tiktok and I was very unsure, and I can safely say, and this may be to her chagrin, I have still not gotten a TikTok, and I honestly don't know if I ever will. It, yeah. it does help stay in touch with what the kids are paying attention to. I mean, and of course, it's curated. You know, everybody, news outlets are on there. You can get your news, but if you want to know what the kids are talking about, what the kids are laughing about, what Gen Z culture is like, it is nice to see. This is true. Uh, and if anything, my sister's sort of been the Gen Z TikTok outlet slash supplier slash dealer, if you will, in terms of providing me with any glimpse into the culture slash, dare I call it, artistry that occasionally goes past her her eyes whenever she's looking at her phone and she has to she's showing me all the tiktoks that were inspired by the batman including ones involving corgis some dressed up as batman uh nice so it's it's a little bit like okay well tiktok seems to be getting it but at the same time yes there's a whole world of uh, batman parodies let alone you know um, you know, Riddler commentating on daily life, and you know, it, it's a big wide world. So, I think you'd enjoy it. Um, that should be a requirement, actually, for the next episode. Yeah. Oh boy! I well, I'll 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 do my best. Uh, I have a few projects I'm working on that I'm figuring out what to do in terms of. Well, I know I have to get them done by next week, so that's that's <laughs> first on my list. But anyway, um, yeah, how are you doing? How's the how's the last week been treating yeah. you? Minus movie reviews. <laughs> yeah, no, everything's things have been okay. Um, I don't know if listeners will be able to hear the construction of my background. I guess it comes with city living in a little apartment here, but uh, been okay. And there goes the dog. Yeah, here we go, city living, and you might hear the cat, but everything's been good. I mean, Boston is a pretty quiet town. You know, life's been good, but. I have no complaints. Uh, it is scary to see the world fall apart, as we'll get into, but um, there also is some spots of humor. I've had some chuckles reading about the LA Mayor's race, for instance, and some other items, but um, <laughs> things are things are okay, and I hope you're doing well. Yes, uh, the weather here has been topsy-turvy in terms of getting very close to 100 degrees and then all of a sudden dipping way down into the 50s. My nose is in agony because of it uh so it's it's like spring the the, the zombified spring of 2022 was resurrected and realized wait a minute i still have yet to affect people's allergies 
Yeah. It can't it can't be summer yet, you know. Well, you could always try some local honey. I don't think that works either. I'm a big allergy guy too, so yeah. I'm always there to you know get some local honey, another wives' tale. <laughs> Before we move on to another LA themed topic, two other things I was gonna mention. I don't know if you still want to get into the New York City subway shooting yeah you know i I think uh, speaking of uh unpopular mayors or i'm not sure how new yorkers perceive (laughs) adams nowadays but um uh, what i actually i do want to touch on something that might be unpopular but Mm -hmm. yeah this happened this subway shooting in new york um should be should i don't want to i i'm fear-mongering this episode shouldn't shouldn't be scared to take the subway but this is scary the subway for as busy and as long as people have been taking the subway, and especially in a place like New York, I'm kind of mm-hmm. surprised this is the first time it's happened. And you see your news reports of like gas masks, uh, smoke bombs, and I think an image finally came out, and the guy did kind of look like a, some sort of cop or subway worker. And uh, my initial thought was, oh, great, like here we go. The Riddler did inspire some domestic terrorism, but. Uh, not to make light of any of the injuries or anything like that. It's a miracle. Nobody died if he's shooting on a subway car. And mm-hmm. I know more of the story is going to come out. But um, just uh, another frightening incident. And also, um, it's going to have, it's just going to spark a, a lot of conversation. I don't know if it has yet, but it just seems like it's going to spark, uh, renew it. Well, it should renew uh, gun debate issues, um, public transportation issues. Um, social media, you know, the way the police found him. I did see some reports of, you know, uh, using cell phone data. Like, what do you mean cell phone data? So I know the guy posted YouTube videos, the alleged shooter, posted YouTube videos expressing his disdain for the way Adams treated homeless people. Um, Yeah, to to me, not only is it a scary incident, but it just, like, brings back all these issues to the surface that, you know, are are extremely sensitive, touchy issues in America. and. I'm not mentally ready to, you know, have that public discourse, but I do think it's, you know, worth noting that, you know, this is, this has ripple effects on a lot of things. You know, you, you contrast that too with the other news, the related news of uh, the president talking about trying to ban ghost guns and he had uh both survivors and family members of the two students that were killed at Saugus High School, which is, it's a good drive, but it's not that far away from from where I live. It's basically the mass shooting that put Santa Clarita further on the map. But, um, you know, they were there at the White House when he gave his his talk about trying to ban these types of guns from ever killing any more people. And again, it's encouraging, but... You know, the, the scary realization I came to with between that and the New York City shooting, this December is going to mark 10 years since the Sandy Hook shooting. Well, which really put into perspective just the lack, uh, the lack thereof in terms of any kind of reform on gun control or you know, whatever you might want to might want to call it like it's. It's flabbergasting to think both how much has changed, but really how much hasn't. It's it's just weird. And and again, you you also contrast uh, the families who are at who had lost children and, and 
some of the survivors of the shooting at Saugus High School, and you contrast that with what Donald Trump was doing that day, in which he was holding a rally for himself, bragging about how he was going to protect people's gun rights. Yep. And, you know, this isn't me saying one way or another how I feel about both presidents. I frankly, I have my issues with just about every American president in history, minus a very small few, very small few. <laughs> uh, it's it's weird. You know, you got one president hugging him, which is already a little like. OK, and then you have what Trump did, and it it just kind of makes me think, you know, none of this is none of this is stopping these things from happening. So, yeah, yeah, it's uh, and, and speaking of the Sandy Hook anniversary, which is insane to th- also think that it has been 10 years since that. But I remember Sandy Hook really seemed like the catalyst for a lot of the gun control conversation to, you know, for people to take it more seriously. And I know there's a lot of action. I know there's still lawsuits with the gun manufacturers still going on with some of the parents. And uh, it, yeah, you're right. It is crazy to see, I, I, yeah, that this is, we're coming up on a decade and we're still having uh, incidents like this. Although in this case, uh, this guy, the suspect fought his pistol in Ohio 11 years prior. Uh, mm. So uh, I don't think that really means anything, but in the context of, you know, gun control. Uh, but uh, yeah, I know, like, for instance, Mayor Adams said that he wants to install um some less invasive versions of metal detectors on New York City subways, which is, I'm sure, will be a huge fight. I'm sure people people don't want that. But at the same time, uh, yeah, it, Adams had a quote that was unrelated to the gun control topic, but he did say something on the news, paraphrasing that, you know, American cities or cities haven't caught up with all this technology and... Yeah, so maybe you stop somebody getting onto the subway with a gun, but again, mm-hmm. uh, you still have, you know, it kind of reminds me of the debate of metal detectors at schools. It's just like band-aids to the bigger problem. Um, you know, there's always going to be a way for uh, somebody who wants to, you know, commit a shooting, like sneak a gun in somewhere or, uh, you know, go to a public space and start firing away. So. It, I know it's impossible, but, uh, you know, getting down to the core root issues, because, again, this suspect also had a prior criminal record. I know that a lot of information is still coming out, but mm-hmm. you know, it's, like, it's the same way that, you know, a lot of the, be, you know, people's criminal records having guns. And, yeah, again, it's a lot. And this is not a gun control podcast necessarily. And I'm <laughs> the most uninformed person to even begin this discussion. But, um there's a lot of issues that we need to settle here. And uh, again, yeah, it's just a bunch of band-aids, 10 years post Sandy Hook, you know, uh, 20 years plus post Columbine, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we're, we're still, if, if we're not back at square one, but like we're at like square one and a half. The last thing I'll say on the, on the topic before we move on is uh, I, I will say that prior to COVID where, it felt like the existential weight of knowing so many people were dying on a daily basis from COVID-19 hit, hits you like a ton of bricks and hits you to that point of feeling like everything is unbearable. Knowing that you live in a community that has experienced a mass shooting was one of the most, it, it, easiest way to describe it, one of the most shattering 
moments of my life. And, you know, the thing I kept saying at that time, I think it was, it had to have been 2019. Um, I believe it was 2019. It may have been earlier now that I'm thinking about it. Um, but, uh, or 2018, you know, it's, it's, and it kind of ties in with that realization of Sandy Hook, of it having been 10 years it's that realization that you have grown up knowing that it won't stop. And the best thing you can hope for is that it won't happen here. And the realization hits you when you think it did happen here. And you're thinking to yourself, well, then what, what's worse than that? What, what goes forward after it did happen here? What's the fear of another shooting? And it's basically my fear is it'll happen elsewhere or it'll happen again, or it'll happen in a community where somebody I care about lives in. Um, because yeah. it, it totally blew us away. It, it totally, I, you know, I, I, my, the, the, the man who basically gave me the opportunity of taking journalism as a career path, he was a teacher at Saugus and, for a good while, I had no idea whether or not he was safe. Um, thankfully, he's fine. He last I saw a picture of him with his grant, his newborn granddaughter. So I'm I'm happy to report Adam Bratt is totally fine. Um, you know, it's it's just a weird thing to have happen in your life and happen in your community and and think to yourself, how do we go forward from here? And then a pandemic comes and you realize we're never going to go forward on anything. California, and if I mispronounce your name, I apologize. Rachel Walther, or Walter, um, she last year published an article on, uh, just kind of double checking online at the moment. Uh, I believe it's her blog called Sleeping All Day Life Between Movies. And last year she published an article titled The Smartest Man in the Room. And it's basically a profile on uh the life and times of christopher hitchens appearing on youtube uh thanks to c-span interviews he did on msnbc and fox and countless other places um obviously i've talked at tremendous length about hitchens on this <laughs> podcast i'm very aware but uh it's it's a great piece i highly recommend everyone go read it um, just so people kind of have an idea on what it's about, I'll just read the first paragraph very quickly. Christopher Hitchens is not dead. Not entirely. His sound and vision can be conjured up any time of the day or night online. 
in an endless assortment of videos and clips on YouTube and beyond. Search C-SPAN's archive for Hitchens, and you will find his 75-plus appearances on the channel, dating from 1985 until 2011, the year of his material death. What sets the Anglo-American journalist apart in these appearances from any of his predecessors, contemporaries, or descendants is how he synthesizes his decades of covering politics and culture with a learned and wise-ass attitude, one that confirms a compliment regularly paid to him that he is, oftentimes, the smartest man in the room. Like I said, definitely check it out. In a lot of ways, it's kind of a biography about him, but hey, you know what? I never tire of seeing what other people have to write about the guy. Um, and you had a chance to read it, I should note. Yeah, no, like, again, like, I... Okay, I can't say I would have never knew who Hitchens was if I didn't meet you, but... Kind of <laughs> close. Um, you know, it, obviously he uh, was a figure before our time growing up, and it wasn't until, you know, you really turned me on to his his works and um i'm not a huge hitchens media consumer but i have you know i do understand his impact but i think you know reading this essay and i do recommend readers uh, listeners <laughs> listeners <laughs> you should go read this this is if you still can't describe like what christopher hitchens is or why he's important to yourself this was an amazing like five 10 minute biography i think it, it really explains because you know he's not difficult to understand in his interviews i know he's an intellectual but at the same time i realize that he can be kind of uh, he's not the most accessible that's for sure uh yeah you know it, i'm sure kids in high school interested aren't googling the dennis miller show you know or c-span <laughs> like so i realize that i think a lot of a lot of people probably don't find him very accessible. And then, of course, too, which the essay goes on to mention his uh, high class British accent and, uh, you know, uh, other factors. You know, he's, uh, he's uh, this uh, London or we call them expats when they come over the other <laughs> the other way. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So he, he is an expat. And again, like from an outside perspective, or if you're new to him, uh, it is definitely you you feel a little challenged like am i ready to absorb all of this but <laughs> this was a perfect introduction and that's uh i'll leave it at that but uh, bravo i uh i definitely sent the link to uh author hitchens author and uh i think he's a philosophy professor ben burgess uh curious to know if he talks about it on his youtube channel or anywhere else but um yeah, you know, again, very well done, very well written. Um, in fact, it was what uh, drew me to Rachel's Instagram account was I randomly saw a post about uh, something either being written or I think it was it was attached to like a, a sizzle reel of some of his appearances on C-SPAN. Uh, which includes one where he's going up against a caller who was give, giving him a hard time. And I, I, I have to read it because it's one of the best responses he's ever given anywhere where uh, it was from 1988. And he says uh, to the caller, you're more insulting than you intend to be, madam, by calling me a liberal. I said earlier I was a socialist. You can't have been listening. We regard liberals as dangerous compromisers. Yeah. And even just that little sentence alone, like, 
it gives you an idea that he's not easy to pigeonhole given all of his views and given even if you just go off the names of the the titles of his books you know those topics alone all give you an idea on like well you know where what where does he fit along the ideological spectrum and he's you know all over the place but um yeah hopefully i'm hoping to get rachel on the show down the road um just because I'd, i'd love to talk to her and talk about her career with her um I'm also trying to think if there was a Hitchens book I'd recommend to you because I know I recommended the one that was sort of considered to be the closest he ever got to like a political manifesto or personal manifesto letters to a young contrarian to Sebastian. And I got that for him for Christmas. I Um, think for you, I'd probably, I'd probably have to go with um, his book on, uh, it, it's more of a polemic, but there is some journalism in there, a, actually a good deal of journalism in there uh, on Richard Nixon's uh, Secretary of State, uh, mm-hmm. the National Security Advisor, Henry Kissinger, called the trials, the, the trial of Henry Kissinger. It's a biting, biting indictment on this guy. And it's it's safe to say you can walk away from reading that thinking, wow, and I thought the guys in the Bush White House were bad. Yeah, that that sounds uh, well. One, um, and it's amazing, remarkable that he's still alive, uh, Kissinger. Um, yeah, for he actually was uh, speaking at uh, MIT a couple years ago, and there was a big hubbub. And you know, I didn't really understand the full uh, spread of you know his his resume. So that mm-hmm. sounds that sounds like a nice introduction because again, yeah, I I don't think. You'd recommend, like, for instance, as noted in the essay, his biography, Hitch 22, like that, <laughs> that might, you know, that uh, sounds like um, maybe not the appetizer I'm looking for for Hitchens. But um, if, uh, if it, Kissinger sounds very accessible, I mean, because, again, uh, also same reason why I'm not going to read, uh, you know, his book on uh, God is not great. So, like, mm-hmm. again, those might be, you know, for a first time Hitchens book reader, that might be a lot. But um i'll i'll put in the order for that because again yeah it sounds accessible a great uh dive into not only hitchens but one of the probably worst people in u.s history yeah well and now that i i remember when that book came out it actually came out i believe right before letters to a young contrarian and i think what's fascinating with both of those books despite being two very different books is that those were those are both often considered his last two the last two books of of the period of his life that people look fondly on just because he had his uh ideological heel turn following 9-11 and i believe both of those books came out in 2001 and hitch 22 you're right like that's that's like okay, I've graduated from his book on Bill Clinton and his book on God. Now I think I can tackle Hitch 22. And it's it's a massive, well, it's not a super long read, but there's so much information packed in there that it makes it one of the chunkiest thought-provoking reads you'll ever pick up. But definitely, you know, to your point, like you want, you do want appetizers before you get to that 
main course. Um, oh, no, I was just going to say on the fact that the trial of Henry Kissinger and also Letters to a Young Contrarian, I see are they really just like 140 pages. Like these aren't like yeah. War and Peace, Anna Karenina type, <laughs> you know, deals to sloth through. So that also is more enticing because, again, yeah, um, it, I, I'm ready. <laughs> and and I should note too. I, I think I've totally buried the lead. Why we're even bringing up Hitchens in the first place? As we're recording, it would have been his 73rd birthday. Naturally, even though it's not five o'clock yet, I have a glass of Johnny Walker Black that has been sitting here for the last 50 some odd minutes. So you know, here's to Hitch, and I guess after that, on to our our main subject. Another notable author and journalist in need of remembrance on our day of recording is Eduardo Galliano, who passed away April 13, 2015. His work put a spotlight on the cruelties brought to Latin America, from the conquistadors to Operation Condor. At times he was a refugee escaping his beloved Uruguay, other times he was a master lyricist, occasionally in the company of Pablo Neruda and Isabel Allende. His magnum opus, Open Veins of Latin America, brought him to a global audience decades after it was published. I highly recommend Days and Nights of Love and War, an early success at lyrical writing and his closest attempt at autobiography, with his classic essay, In Defense of the Word. Yeah, I, I don't know if you want to leave this in. I know like this is something that uh, the next topic we are both pretty passionate about i would say maybe in different ways but we're actually no this is something where uh, in preparing for this uh now i'm just holding it up too much uh, do you want to introduce us i had a joke about the name of the publication that came out with this <laughs> article um but uh not really a joke just more like anyway um yeah so what kind of inspired me to bring this subject up was it's kind of become a thread this season, um, and this will probably be the end of that thread, sadly. Maybe not sadly, but, um, you know, I've mentioned, I think, since I think the end of last season, that there's a new L.A.-centric movie coming out with Jake Gyllenhaal called Ambulance, which, uh, you know, it's directed by Michael Bay. It's a heist movie. Visually, it looks appealing, but... As much as I would love to keep going on the train of watching various movies of Jake Gyllenhaal doing things in Los Angeles, playing very different people in all of them, uh, and having seen his previous one, The Guilty, which was meh, I don't feel the need to watch Ambulance. Uh, Maybe down the road I'll watch it. Uh, If listeners can always go back and listen to our episode on his initial trilogy of films that uh, I reviewed and recommended to Sebastian, who at that time had not seen them, uh, despite our prearranged agreement. Damn it, buddy. Damn it, man. Um, just messing with you, buddy. Well, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, well I, I regret not watching Ambulance uh, before we chatted, which I'll, I, I did see some initial OK reviews. I need to revisit that. But um, you're saying you didn't want to see Ambulance, the way they marketed it, that it's such an L.A. movie. I mean, the L.A. in the word Ambulance is in red. Yeah. Um, the movie poster is probably their faces over the skyline. 
it is insane how much that movie was marketed to be an LA movie. They tried so hard. And as you know, this list that we're about to talk about really just, you know, 25 quote unquote best films set in set in Los Angeles, not about Los Angeles, but um, it really is just, you know, we're about to dive into an example that you don't need to market your, that your movie is based in LA, you know, uh, for all of us not from LA, we would have probably never figured where the San Fernando Valley is for licorice pizza. So things like yeah. that, you know, or like, hey, Boogie Nights, that's, you know, where I went to school, sort of. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's really funny that, you know, they tried so hard and they, you don't need to. So many movies have done an, the LA story without putting it so forward. And um I guess diving right into it, you know, uh, this list from Yard Barker, if I'm saying that correctly. Now, I have to I have to ask, how would you and I already know the answer because I'm probably going to say it in T minus one minute. But how would you imagine someone in Boston reading the name of this publication? (laughs) Oh, God, you mean Yard Barker? I don't know. It's Yard Barker. That was a very Christopher Walken-esque Boston. Um, oh, God. <laughs> Yadbaka. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> that Boston accent. Yeah, and, like someone from Boston would even care about anything other than Boston anyways. But yeah, that is funny. Um, <laughs> I couldn't help it. I it just... <laughs> no, yeah, it kind of... Uh, that put a smile on my face because I know it's living in Boston, the most tired joke is the accent, but it's always hilarious because it's ridiculous. And, uh, you know, that 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 could be a podcast topic in itself. You know, the Boston accent moved to the suburbs because of uh, busing segregation. And, you know, when they started busing and they started letting everyone take the bus, you know, like whatever. That's a topic for another time. But, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, diving back into this list of Yadbaka. Um, I think it was really funny that, you know, the mm-hmm. very first movie on this list, for instance, for example, was Die Hard. And I know, you know, I don't know if you want to go hit by hit, movie by movie, but I think it needs to be addressed that, you know, Die Hard was the first movie listed because I never realized it was an LA movie as a kid. I mean, yes, it's a skyscraper. Mm-hmm. And yes, the whole plot is that he's a New York cop flying to LA for the holiday. But what else is LA about it? You know, like the police have LAPD on the cars. Um, there's I, I I don't remember it being an LA movie. Neither did I. It always stuck with me that Bruce Willis, John McClane was a New York cop. And because of the fact that you have Reginald Vell Johnson in the movie, presumably playing an LAPD officer, but I remember him from Family Matters, so I don't think of him as LAPD. You have all these factors that are basically not telling me this is in Los Angeles. It's just telling me it's in a skyscraper. You don't need to you don't need to think about where it's at. It's just a skyscraper in a city. It's not Chicago, it's not New York, it's not Metropolis. It's just it's in a city. And admittedly at one point in my life I genuinely thought it was in Japan. Uh Nakatomi Plaza. Yep. Exactly, yeah. And I think, you know, we, we, we can some of these we can probably just speed through just because we probably either haven't seen the film or, you know, we can't say one way or another. But I mean, yeah, with this movie in particular, I, all right, it's set in L.A., but 
you I'll put it this way with some of the other movies on this list and one other movie that I'm not happy is not on this list uh that really ought to be um they really do grasp the weird kind of mystery and and the kind of stuff that you would you know hear about in something like City of Quartz that touches on the mystique of the city that's both a net positive and a huge net negative. Um, so anyway, next film, I can safely say I haven't seen it. Repo Man with Emilio Estevez. Um, again, and uh, this doesn't make for great great uh, podcast back and forth, but again, no, this movie predates us both. I mean, not only does it predate us both, um, it's not a part of the pop culture, you know, what is it? Like our shared um, pop culture experience. Nobody's like, oh yeah, that movie, you know, those quotes, like whoever's seen Repo Man is probably like shaking their head right now, but um, <laughs> never seen it. So I really can't say anything. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, got, I got nothing to add to that. Um, so anyway, yes. number three, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I finally saw and I'm going to, pretty yeah i saw it um last year finally for the first time uh yeah i mean <laughs> that's it clocks a, it a ringing endorsement i mean <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get down to the later the list where, where tarantino has done much better la movies but i wonder if this is a case where it's like i, I don't and i haven't seen it i actually am not hmm. really too thrilled to see it actually but um for whatever reason but it's, you know, it's another thing where it's like uh, once upon a time in Hollywood. And it's like, OK, like you probably didn't even need to, like, put that in the title. Like it's if the plot is literally about Hollywood, like, I don't know, it just seems like a, another one of those efforts where they kind of tried a little too hard. And I know there's some historical aspects. I don't know if you know, spoilers mm-hmm. or not. there's some historical incidents in, in the film. I am aware of that, that, you know, make it, you know, L.A.-ish again. But again, uh, you don't need to just in the movie title. I'm like, you don't need to say it's in L.A. like that. But yeah, <laughs> I, I that's my thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, the most I, I can say about it, because I, I actually, in hindsight, I did. I don't know if I'd say I enjoyed it, but would I rewatch it? Definitely. Um, you know, I I do. I do think they did an excellent job in terms of making you actually care about some of these other characters, namely the actors, quote unquote, that DiCaprio and Brad Pitt are playing. Um, It's the first movie I've seen where I actually liked Brad Pitt in the movie. I'm not a fan of his at all, but it it was, yeah, it was like, he's just kind of like, he's Lebowski-esque in the movie. Um, so, and, and, you know, I, I can't falter the rest of the film for, if anything, it it shows you a very idyllic LA that I think what makes it stand out is that it's clearly Tarantino's love letter, not only to the LA that he looks back on and misses, but it's also the LA that in a lot of ways, and, you know, thousands of other people have said this before, but basically showing you how one pivotal moment in history could have altered not taken LA out of its quote unquote golden age and into a, an era of darkness following 
the Manson killings. Because it does take some of that liberty with the history, kind of like *Glorious Bastards, which is actually one of my favorite movies of his. That and Reservoir Dogs. I mean, is it a recommend for me? Yeah, check it out. I mean, I, again, I I still don't know where I would, like, how what kind of letter grade I would give it. Because there is some of it that's sappy. There is some of it that you're like, this doesn't need to be here. Definitely check it out. And then we have The Long Goodbye. Uh, just to kind of read the description, because I, I'm pretty sure I had heard of it before. The crux of the long goodbye is Robert Altman. Who I should note, I actually know somebody who used to be. Uh, and I believe Robert Altman is no longer with us. Uh, I actually know somebody who worked with Robert Altman and loved him very much. Uh Taking the character of Philip Marlowe out of the hard-boiled Los Angeles of the 40s and plopping him into 1970s L.A., Elliot Gould plays Marlowe as a man out of time surrounded by wealthy Malibu types and health nuts. It's a fascinating juxtaposition that makes for a fine noir film. Now, the thing that kind of really pulls me in is that this picture, I'm pretty sure that's Arnold. Uh, It does, the mustached man. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, who else is like walking around that buff too? That's funny. Um, yeah, again, um, another movie that I had never seen as well sounds interesting. And anything that takes a look at Los Angeles from that era, made in that era, and I know the plot seems to you know cross some different times, but at the same time, like I think for me, like anything that is um, from made in the era that it's representing not one of these once upon a time in Hollywood flashback types mm-hmm. um, is always going to, you know, feel more authentic, feel more true to the city. They're not trying to like recreate the 70, what it felt like in 1973 just is. And I haven't seen the movie. So again, this could all be BS. And by the way, that is an uncredited appearance by Arnold. So indeed. Um, yeah. This does sound like a, maybe a uh, hidden gem. Uh, but again, <laughs> maybe we could report back <laughs> next time, but it does seem intriguing. So again, uh, another, you know, I don't know if it's a love letter to LA or not necessarily, but uh, it's intriguing. It sounds intriguing. And I, I do, I did finally realize where the name, the long goodbye, why, why it se- seems so familiar to me. And it's, it's the name of a novel by Raymond Chandler who wrote a whole bunch of novels, a bunch of pulpy noir novels set in Los Angeles. So that kind of explained why it seemed familiar. Um, I mean, I, I haven't read it. I, I can't say anything else about it other than the uncredited uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger appearance has me enticed well enough. Um, so anyway, uh, we get to Don, one of Donald Trump's favorite movies, Sunset Boulevard, uh, where, of course, we get the immortal line of, you know, I'm ready for my close up, Mr. DeMille. Uh Still need to watch it. I have it on DVD and I still haven't cracked it open. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I, I haven't seen this well. And, you know, uh, on one hand, you're like, well, it's a movie that, well, I guess is now 72 years old. So, and yeah, like watching something in black and white, I think we're, we're adults now. So we realize black and white doesn't mean it sucks. I mean, I definitely was that kind of kid growing up where I'm like, oh man, like we have to watch this black and white movie every Christmas or Christmas. You know? <laughs> it's just like growing up, anything that was like, you know, you, you think black and white or film noir and like, Oh, like, are they going to talk in a transatlantic accent? Is this plot going to be really dumb? Like 
No, but this is like a classic, so I can't say anything about it, but I understand it is highly regarded, so I can't really say anything other than that uh, it is well regarded. And I think everything you just said can also apply to the next film, The Big Sleep. Yes. Uh, which I, I'm still kind of kicking myself that I never watched it in preparation for working at WB. It may have been recommended. It's another Marlowe story. So it's it's based on another Raymond Chandler novel. Uh, I mean, you can't go wrong when it's a Humphrey Bogart film. I, I've seen several of his movies and he's... He definitely earned the status in Hollywood that he had. Apparently, he, uh, brief little digression about him, he was typically known for playing more villainous or side character kind of roles. And it really wasn't until Casablanca and the Maltese Falcon that he was like, yeah, I can be more, I can be more than just a guy on the side here, you know? Um, so yeah, I. I don't know if you have anything to add to that or not really. Cause again, uh, just as you, you know, the Maltese Falcon, I have never seen and I understand it is a very important movie. So again, uh, I apologize listeners, but I don't have <laughs> any opinions on the big sleep, but maybe next time. But again, yeah, if um, I, I trust these um, movies and I don't know if it's considered the golden age of Hollywood, but I, I trust these movies made back in the day to be pretty true to the city at that time so again an uninformed opinion but i can say you know and moving to our next movie here the big lebowski Mm -hmm. that not only is a classic but i think it does justice to los angeles as well uh when you say you know is it set in los angeles i don't recall any landmarks um the rich lebowski lives in a mansion that as far as i can remember doesn't seem very la-ish mm-hmm. but but it definitely has the vibe i think you know um what is it the streets there's lots of driving in this movie or some driving in this movie there's lots of locations in this movie um the big the dude's apartment <laughs> looks like it's out in Reseda or something like that i don't oh, remember yeah. yeah i don't remember if they say exactly where it takes place but watching it if you've seen one movie set in L.A., you could tell The Big Lebowski is in L.A. Yeah, it was it was kind of that era, you know, given this was four years after Pulp Fiction, it was kind of that era of, well, wait a minute. We can make movies about whatever kind of dumb existential heroes that happen to, you know, we, we can make it on a shoestring budget, film it in our backyard pump it out and basically see whether or not it resonates with audiences. And this kind of fits in that same vein as a Pulp Fiction where again, like it's, it's not your typical film just by its own merits. Like first time I watched it, I was bored to tears, watched it again, I think last year. And I was so pleasantly pleased watching it. And of course that's also because like, Maybe this is just part of getting older. I have a little bit more. <laughs> I have a little bit more of a uh, connection with some of the characters in the film. Obviously, Steve Buscemi is a national treasure, so that's enough to get me into the movie. Uh, of course, the immortal line of "I hate the fucking Eagles, man." 
resonates <laughs> with me. <laughs> um, so, and every, it's funny, every time I bring that line up in my house, nobody else gets it because nobody else is a Coen Brothers fan. So I'm always like, come on, guys. Like, well, according to my girlfriend, it is a guy movie, and I never mm. heard that perspective. I could see it, you know, looking back now, totally understand. It's really not a strong female character, or I guess there's one, maybe. But, um, yeah, I totally get that, too, the perspective that it's a guy movie. And it's funny that you say you were uh, bored the first time you watched it, because it because it does seem like a movie that, um, you know, I enjoy it. For, like There's probably, like, a little stretch where it was, like, my favorite movie, and um it is kind of one of those films where it's in a weird way polarizing i've found because i do know plenty of people who aren't fans but um i think it's entertaining though at the least at the least it's an entertaining watch so i think people could still come away not liking it but um there's no shortage of entertainment now the humor is a different story but um, yeah like, like you have your eagles line you know i always uh <laughs> laugh thinking about the um the ash uh what is it the ashes scene at the end Oh, and that and like what? What is Hill three sixty four? You know, googling back in the day, you know, <laughs> long dog case, and so so it's like yeah, another uh, a very it's full, it's full of quotes too. Uh, it's a it's a movie I could talk about for a while, but it's a it's a good one. It's a recommend. I, I have a personal note on the ash scattering scene that I'll mention off air. That all I'll say is that every time I think back to a particular moment in my life that scene always comes up and gives me a smile um, just because it's it let's let's just say I was at an ash scattering that was vaguely reminiscent of this ash scattering and yeah I I think of anything I don't know how old I was when I first saw it but I can safely say that I'm very much different now than I was then and of course last thing I'll mention before moving on to singing in the rain is I do very much enjoy the inclusion of The Man in Me by Bob Dylan, which a younger Ryan would not have appreciated that song. Uh, but an older Ryan very much almost every morning, not every morning, but I alternate, don't you know, with uh, <laughs> I sometimes that's a good wake up song when I have my alarm go off in the morning just because it's. I don't know, it's soothing. Maybe that says a little too much about me. Hey, that's no what this sweat. podcast is about. We all, we all <laughs> need our, our, our wake-up songs on certain days, so no no judgment. Exactly. And, and I got another wake-up song that applies to this list later on as well. But before we get to that, Singing in the Rain. Um, Never seen it. I can come out and say I've never seen it. And to be honest, it's, uh, you know, I, I don't think I ever will. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know how much of an L.A. movie it actually is, but... Um, my own, I do not even know the, the only way I even know the melody of singing with the rain is because of a clockwork orange. So, oh my God. Yeah. Wow. Like I would see the title growing up, like singing in the rain. And I was like on TV and stuff and like, it was a VHS classic. So, um, I was aware of its existence, but <laughs> the melody, the I'm singing in the rain, or I can't even recreate it, but uh, my, well, yeah, one of my first exposures was clockwork. So, um, you know, seen the clip, the the famous or infamous clip. So no opinion. It's funny. And, and this is so timely because my mom was actually watching it not too long ago. And so I probably saw maybe, maybe 15, 20 minutes of it. And 
first thing I'll say is I wasn't expecting the good morning, good morning sequence to play right as I walked into the room. And I was immediately hearkening back to like commercials I've seen recently where they play that song. Um, And then shortly thereafter, they play I'm Singing in the Rain, which, again, to your point, like I remember rewatching A Clockwork Orange last year and thinking to myself, yeah, that that this movie has has totally emblazoned the song in my brain in a way that I don't think was intended. Finally, it, it didn't come to mind when my mom was watching it. Um, Good. The simplest way I can describe this movie is that it's white Christmas without the Christmas, hmm. which maybe that's a good thing. It depends on the kind of movie viewer you are. Anyway, yeah. um, you gotta be in the mood. And last, uh, exactly. and one last note, a fun fact. If anyone's ever been on the tram tour at universal studios, You've probably heard the factoid that he was singing in the milk because right water wouldn't show up on camera. And it is the most tired yeah. joke every time I take that tram, which has been like almost <laughs> a dozen times I feel. Um, they're singing in the milk. But anyways, yes. Um, so Interesting. Uh, maybe not so fun fact, a, a boring fact. But um, moving on to the next movie, I have never heard of this movie. And it actually, I want to go on a tangent for this movie. It's called Heaven Can Wait. And and I'm not sure if you've seen it, but I'm explaining the plot here about an mm. NFL quarterback who was inadvertently taken to heaven by an overzealous guardian angel and then gets a chance to return to earth in a wealthy businessman's body. But he still tries to become an NFL quarterback, and I assume hijinks ensue. So I don't know the tone of this movie, but it almost seems as somebody who hasn't seen it that they just shoved it in here because he plays for the LA Rams. But I don't know. Have you seen this movie? I have not. The funny thing is, is that I believe it's on HBO Max and the poster for it has zero indication that it's a football movie. So this was this was total news to me, seeing this picture of Warren Beatty wearing uh, wearing a jersey and the shoulder pads and everything. Um, Now. Dumb, silly question. Uh, your your thoughts on the movie? Would you say it's a takedown or turnover? <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, I'm going to say it's a turnover <laughs> just because <laughs> just on the fact it could be a fine movie. But um, I kind of don't like these a, a movie, a movie about sports doesn't have to, like, know the sport inside and out to get, you know, they don't have to, like, quote-unquote get it right to be effective like there's plenty mm-hmm. of kevin costner baseball movies that the directors probably don't know what baseball is and there's obviously feel the dreams where they do but i guess the point here is that i think looking at this thumbnail for instance it's warren Beatty in the in the rams uniform talking to i assume a sports reporter but um it it gives me a vibe that <laughs> it, it seems like they don't know what football is or something like that i mean I, again, I'm talking about something I've never seen before. So, uh, but just by reading the synopsis and looking at the thumbnail, it just looks off. And and I was wrong. It was touchdown or turnover. Sorry, Pete and Kenny. Uh, said they say the. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to call them out, but you know, it's not. A, I I've heard many variations. Um, okay. I actually. Well, no sweat. I actually do want to say a quick tangent because the next film is worth worthy of talking about. But by all means, tangent, um, Heaven Can Wait. Says it came out in '78. 
for listeners and especially our football brothers, they need to. Uh, you, you ever heard of North Dallas Forty, a novel and film? Uh, it stars Nick Nolte, and he's really good. He's basically hmm. an NFL player, or it's like the made-up version for the movie of like the Dallas Cowboys. And it's based off a novel by an actual Dallas Cowboys player. And it's like one of those inside looks of like, you know, the real side of the team. And it's full of like steroids, uh, drug and alcohol abuse, um, you know, criminal behavior, uh, exploitation of athletes, uh, you know, uh, poor treatment of women. Basically, the dirty side of the NFL. Um, mm-hmm. North Dallas 40 is the film version of the book. And it's an ex- it's really, really underrated hidden gem. It's done really well. Nick Nolte is a great actor. Everyone in the movie really is a good actor. I'm just talking about something completely different here. But <laughs> on a side tangent, I I'm I would assume that North Dallas 40 knocks Heaven Can Wait out of the park. But I digress. Hmm. Interesting. No, I'll I'll be on the lookout for that for sure. I I minus the new Clint Eastwood movie, I do need some new uh, viewing when I'm not watching Star Trek Three. Anyway, uh, speaking of science fiction. Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Um, So the one thing I will say, I mean, it kind of goes without saying, listeners, please watch this movie. Although, easily watch the first movie first, because it's the first movie. Um, But uh, it kind of blew me away one of the last, I forgot how many times I saw the movie, that I was recognizing more and more streets and bridges and whatnot in and around Northridge and Chatsworth. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, and, and admittedly, some of this was partially later helped by Wikipedia. Um, but uh, I want to say Havenhurst shows up at one point and you can still drive over in that area. And it's dawning on you that this is where John Connor had to dodge a incoming semi-truck driven by the T-1000. But um which I should note, a little personal note on the T-1000, <laughs> weird sentence to say. Uh, he owns the Harley Davidson out here in Santa Clarita, uh, Robert Patrick. And unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to meet him, although he is, the I think, the only celebrity in which I have not only a picture of them, but their autograph. Yeah. Uh, to which, hang on, let me grab it so I can read it. Um, so <clears throat> it's the picture of him in Terminator 2 when he's wagging his finger at Sarah Connor. Yeah. And it says on it, say, that's a nice bike. Uh, and then it has his autograph and then it says T1000 at the bottom. And months later, uh, you know, I, this was for a article I was working on for the signal, me and my friend, uh, who's now at San Diego Union Tribune. Uh, Emily Alvarenga, we were covering an event they were holding, and it wasn't until later on that I found out he was at the 4th of July parade driving around the then mayor of Santa Clarita. And at one point I saw him come by and I'm like whacking because Emily and I, we were both attending the event for the signal. We were participating in the event. Technically, I'm like whacking her on the arm like, Emily, Emily, it's Terminator. It's Terminator. It's T-1000. You know, Judgment Day is inevitable. You know, I, I was like having a, a mini stroke because I'm like, oh, wow, celebrity, um, which 
on average, I'm never like that. Like when I saw Guillermo del Toro and J.J. Abrams, I was definitely not like that. But in this case, it was like, oh, shit. It's one of the greatest movie villains of all time. I know this has nothing to do with L.A., but a little personal tangent. Anyway, I guess it's come full circle because he, he I guess he's still in the region. Um, yeah, yeah no, this uh, again, like watching it in the L.A. River, which I guess by T by if, if people didn't recognize it by Greece, as it says here, um, you recognize it by Terminator 2. But um, one of the all-time classic movies of any genre ever, and the other day, um, because I love this movie so much, I was randomly scrolling through Wikipedia, unrelated to my research of this list. And Mm. I was, as much as I know the movie is a great movie, I just did not realize that some people consider it one of the best movies ever made, which... It's not shocking. It's so well done. It's James Cameron. Um, the acting is obviously terrific. The story is amazing. It touches on. Mm-hmm. Um, it really just builds mm-hmm. on the greatness of Terminator One, and you know, talking about issues of artificial intelligence, um, just all these societal issues that it does a pretty good job of touching on. I think you know the only kind of I would say maybe weak point. I remember always um, thinking that uh, John Connor's uh, foster parents. Uh, growing up i hated them and then later i felt sad for them and i feel like if there's any part of the movie that didn't connect for me it might be that but beyond that it's almost a flawless movie um mm-hmm. it's uh really all the notes and i remember thinking um you know i still will look back on the movie and i'm just like uh, and now i'm really strained from the point but another you know one thing i do want to say is that i always thought the um growing up i thought the john connor or what is it the terminator being a father figure to john angle i growing up i didn't know if it worked and maybe that's just because my own you know issues with my father <laughs> and i'm just like really a robot and you know growing up you're a kid you have all these thoughts and stuff but i don't know there's just these like plot points that you didn't connect and now as an adult uh kind of hit differently and you understand it more which also this movie came on 91 a lot of us saw it when we were young on tv all the time it's like a lot of people probably have it in vhs so if you haven't seen it in a while listeners like go back and listeners yeah go i was gonna say read it again um go back and watch this because uh, not only you're gonna see a lot of plot points be relevant to today a lot of themes but um you'll understand the story differently too and uh yeah it is a very la movie through and through um i know some people will complain about the steel manufacturing facility off the freeway what the heck is that (laughs) But I mean, just the fact that the mall chase, I want to say it's the Northridge Mall. I've never. Yep. Yeah. Okay. awesome. I I knew it. Um, (laughs) it, it, It's uh, it's uh, as we'll get down into further down the list. It's one of those movies that also does L.A. justice and that it shows you that there's more to L.A. than just like downtown and, you know, some of the more and Hollywood. Uh, You know, the valley has like two million residents. It is such a huge portion of L.A. And uh, there's a few more movies down the list that do touch on this. But um, it does great justice to the city of L.A. beyond downtown. Definitely. Um, And final note on it, it's really the only Terminator sequel to accomplish repeating the story of the first movie and being successful, which all of the sequels did not do successfully, minus the fourth movie, which was totally different altogether. Not that bad, but... Yeah. Are you talking about Terminator Salvation? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I guess it was watchable, but maybe I'm just giving Christian Bale too much credit because he's coming off the Dark Knight. Um, but yeah. <laughs> a Terminator <laughs> breakdown discussion could be warranted as well because yeah, um, it's a mixed result. Wouldn't mind introducing the next one because this is one of my favorite movies of all time. It might be my favorite oh, wow. movie ever. Uh, Jackie Brown by Quentin Tarantino, which is based off a uh, Elmore Leonard, Elmore Elmore uh, novel. Um, mm. I believe it's called Rum Punch and it i think it's quentin tarantino's greatest work and maybe it's because he's working off an adapted screenplay but it is an amazing film uh quality you know it, it had the the acting obviously you have like a robert a disheveled weird mute like low-key robert de niro well a very unorthodox robert de niro performance and uh sam jackson uh toward his peak if not his peak you have uh Michael Keaton being a great supporting character. And then you have the uh, two Hollywood throwbacks in the leads that I wasn't familiar with, Pam Greer. And, oh, God, I'm going to forget his name. Um, oh, I got gotcha. you. Or actually, if you got it. No, I, I know his name is Max Cherry in the movie. Uh, Robert Forster. Yes, who, you know, again, before our time, but the movie made them feel like you know fresh a-listers basically but not only is it a, a great movie with a twisting plot and i actually do have to say I, I think i had to watch it twice before i fully understood but it's another one of these movies that does la justice and the la beyond the downtowns and such you get a taste of uh, south la and like uh what is the mall that they uh do the heist at this is like you know area oh. south of la um Topanga Canyon, or I don't know if it's the canyon, but um, you get, uh, you really see a really different side of LA. The movie starts at LAX and it's uh, the driving all over, but it's really just all the outskirts of LA. So um, it's like almost like a little, yes, it's criminal activity, but it's like almost like a slice of life of just like, yep, this is how people live in these, you know, these areas. So I love it. I think a rewatch will certainly. Well, it'll solidify it as potentially another favorite Tarantino film because I'm not, that's just it. Like I've seen the majority of his films, if not all of them. Uh, and it's, it's very up and down with me to the point where I'm like, is he overrated? Like I, I've kind of come around to being like, he has some classics again, glorious bastards, reservoir dogs. Um, Pulp Fiction, I'm actually kind of warming up to the older I get outside of just the scene with Christopher Walken, you know, stuck it somewhere. He stuck up his ass. Um, but uh, I feel like I need to rewatch this because it as much as it was a perfect introduction to. The L.A. that I just didn't know enough about um, and, and introducing it in a thematic way. I don't think I appreciated it enough at the time and just kind of looked down on it as like, well, it's the Tarantino movie that hardly enough people talk about. It seems like as time goes by, more and more people, whether it's film critics that I follow or fans or friends, talk about it more and more and have a lot more respect for it than like the other movies. It's it's just kind of like it's fun. Whereas this one, it really is like a film that really resonates in countless different ways. And of course, I mean, 
it would be a no-brainer for me to like it with the likes of Robert De Niro and, of course, my guy, Michael Keaton, being like, uh, hey, uh, uh, Jackie, you sure you, sure you want to do this thing? I don't know if you want to do it. Um, <laughs> you, you know this movie through and through. It, it's a recommend, even though I, I desperately need to rewatch it. Now, a movie I did watch, finally, in its entirety, not too long ago, due to a script read with friends, in which I got to play... <laughs> In which I got to play Dirk Diggler, uh, Boogie Nights, um, in which you can go out there and find a video of me doing my Marky Mark for two hours. Uh, yeah, Napoleon. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's as Yard Barker says, the city, specifically the San Fernando Valley, is known for its part in the pornography industry. I didn't know that was going to be the part of the segment I was going to read. Anywho, um, no, I mean, it. Yeah, it is what it is. I mean, I can think of another, you know, like we didn't have the Internet growing up and we don't know these things. We didn't, I, you know, I growing up, I had no idea about the San Fernando Valley's reputation like this. And um, I, 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 I would imagine it's kind of the first movie to the first mainstream movie to really dive into this scene, um, into the, the porn scene in the valley. And, you know, the, the valley is the hub of all of this. But. This is a movie where there's a lot to be said. It's like um, a Burt Reynolds career revival and might be his best movie ever. I've never seen mm-hmm. all of his movies, but I've seen plenty of trash by him. And Mark Wahlberg might be his finest movie, too. He's not much of an actor to begin with, but he really turns it in here. And, you know, you have a young John C. Riley, And again, going back to the L.A. theme and pardon the construction outside, but uh, oh, good. all good. Yeah, but um it's just a total like valley movie you i don't think there's any recognizable landmarks or streets i mean there might have been like a Reseda street or city boulevard name in the background but beyond that it's an la movie and it doesn't really you know there's no scene where they go to the observatory you know or anything like that so mm-hmm. uh, as far as i can remember it's it's also does such a good job of like giving you the sense of place without like overdoing it either yeah, I mean, it's certainly after the time we had in the San Fernando Valley and the time I've had subsequently to become more engrossed in as many things L.A. as I can, certainly re-watch, not rewatching, watching this movie for the first time definitely gave me more of an idea of just what that world was like back in the day. So it, it's, I mean, it's an easy recommend for me, even though it's, it's a weird movie, but like, it was a ride, <laughs> just, it was a ride alone, just watching it, um, and kind of preparing myself for the script read I was doing. But, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's an easy recommend the next movie, which I do need to rewatch because it's been even longer of a time since I first watched it than since I first watched Jackie Brown. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Now, I have very little exposure to San Dimas, so I have almost nothing to say um, other than from what I remember, Keanu was great and Socrates, they they pronounced it Socrates. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I've never actually seen this movie. I am missing out. Uh, And again, San Dimas, I've... (laughs) It's definitely not L.A. And just like, okay, like, list author, you could have done better than this. But it is a classic worthy of mention. I know I haven't seen it, but I know that it has a very favorable 
reviews from a lot of people so, like a lot of people in my friends group too and you know my mom loves it um i know it's a movie they show in school you know things like that but um yeah i don't have anything to say but i know it's well regarded again maybe they could have swapped this with chinatown <clears throat> <clears throat> excuse me i don't know what that was um but uh <laughs> I, I was just gonna second that but because you know in really breaking down this list um the next movie is a movie i've never heard of whereas same you, know, you, you overlook a classic like chinatown and then you say point blank and this screenshot that they should that they show us is obviously the la river but i don't even know who lee marvin is or i can't recall any of his other roles so um sounds like a crime thriller uh, i'm totally skipping over this but at the same time i have never heard of it so I don't know if you have anything to add. I have nothing to add other than arguably, I mean, screwed out. He'll kill anybody who stands in his way. Well, there's a couple set pieces. Blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. Just reading from this little brief description of it, like I probably would have suggested Chinatown over this because I feel like there's more of a more of a historical narrative there. Chinatown is certainly one of my favorite la movies like it's a movie i love revisiting especially because it again i mean it encompasses it encompasses that weird 20s 30s art deco-y era that is very fond upon but at the same time it's you know it, it does get to that you know dirt under your nails kind of city and and hell it even shows you the valley before it became the valley, you know, back when it was literally just orange groves. And yeah, they kind of fictionalized some of the names here and there. But uh, again, it, I feel like that would be a far better inclusion that does incorporate water into the story and crime than point blank. And who knows? I I know Lee, Lee Marvin. I think he was in the big red one. Um, he's been in a couple like war movies and he's popular through those but i i don't know I'd, I'd give this a shot but i i think chinatown would have been a far more noted film another noted film the next one which i still need to watch still boys in the hood uh la yeah. is more than hollywood oh go ahead sorry Oh, no, I was going to say, uh, you should definitely watch it. And here goes the construction again. Speaking of city living, um, <laughs> yeah, Boys in the Hood is, my, that might be one of the most, I don't know about best movies ever, but are most it's very well made, and it is probably the first ever mainstream look at life growing up in South LA, or South Central, as it was really called, or probably still is. And... Uh, you get uh, really good performances from the cast, Cuba Gooding Jr., Ice Cube, Lawrence Fishburne. And then, yeah, the uh, director, whose name is escaping me at the moment. Uh, John Singleton. Yeah, I believe he made it when he was 24 or something insane. And, oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, just kind of, it's, uh, it's, I wouldn't say it's unexpected, but it's, it's a really good movie about South LA and you can imagine uh, the plot and obviously uh, our, our good friend uh, Kenneth loves to talk about a certain scene and a certain character, but um, it's, uh, 
it's a very memorable movie and yeah there's a scene where at the end where they're eating at you know like a familiar burger joint um all kinds of things like that so not only is it a good movie uh it's also like really the first look at uh growing up in south central and uh, all the trouble surrounding them and all the difficulties and Lawrence Fishburne is a great kind of um a moral compass so yeah again just a classic all the way around excellent now i like i said i really know that i need to watch it um the next movie which i i've never had an inclination to watch it especially given my childhood watching batman and robin uh clueless i i mean i know a few things about it here and there i've actually met alicia silverstone fun fact um Yeah, it was it was a signal story and she was at an event. I didn't get a chance to interview her, um, but she was at the event and it was, you know, introduced myself. It also introduced a lot of people to Paul Rudd. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, again, I haven't seen it and I know I guess that's what you get when you have two men hosts that talk about it. But it's <laughs> it's uh, it's one of those things where I again. I know they say it's a good movie, you know, even for what it is. So even for mm-hmm. me, like it's a chick flick, but um, yeah, it's on the list. <laughs> it's on the list of things to watch. So we're not disparaging it at all. Now, the next movie I finally watched either. Oh, shoot. I'd have to really scroll back in the group chat, but I'm all but certain I watched it on my 27th birthday training day. Definite recommend very much an L.A. movie on just about any front you can think of. You know, Ethan Hawke, Denzel Washington. It's, in a lot of weird ways, it was kind of the... I'll put it this way. If you want, like, a good precursor to watching End of Watch, this is definitely the movie to see, just because you can tell this was a movie trying to grapple with all that came about from Los Angeles in the early 90s and just the 90s in general. Um, Whereas End of Watch is definitely very much a 20th century or rather 21st century film focused on how much for and how little LAPD has changed in the 20, 30 years since uh, what happened with Rodney King and the CHP. More on that in another episode. But um I mean, all I can all I can do is sing this movie's praises. Uh, Drew, back to you. Yeah, no, it's excellent. It's an excellent movie, and Ethan Hawke and Denzel are amazing in this movie. Again, just another really well made movie. And actually, I did search the group chat, and I do see your instant takeaway. Um, and your instant takeaway is quote. First half of the movie, pretty damn real. Second half started feeling like a quote-unquote movie movie. Either way, damn good watch. So you had praises for it the moment you watched it. And the fact oh, yeah. that you still holding those praises. Yeah, again, I've never seen anybody talk about about this movie. It's a great look at, uh, it's, it's a great, at LA, at, again, uh, several areas of LA. And uh, it's a great look at the corrupt LAPD. Uh I only have one hang up and it kind of mm-hmm. reminds me of uh, who's who's the uh, famous person that said, you know, why did Denzel have to be the bad guy to win his Oscar? But that that's like a very minor complaint. Oh, yeah. It's a, 
so yeah, I, I think there's a, a somebody famous. It's either in a song or quote. They're just like, yeah, why did Denzel have to like play the bad guy to win? And uh, hmm. you know, it doesn't uh, doesn't bring the movie down any notches, but it's more of a comment on the Oscars and other things. And... <laughs> I'd easily rewatch this as well. In fact, I think it's back on my HBO viewing queue. But um, you know, I mentioned End of Watch, which is also noticeably not on this list, uh, and honestly should be. Um, I think that movie, by comparison. It's I I would issue a similar a similar review as I did the night I watched this, only I would say ninety percent of it was very, you know, very much the kind of off the rail story you would imagine. And it's only like the last like less than the last like I don't know, half of a quarter of the last act of the film that did start feeling more like a movie. But even then, it still feels real enough where it's like, yeah, this feels pretty believable. Speaking of things you can believe, I have not watched I Love You, Man. Uh, I think you're not missing out on much. And I know there's dedicated fans of this movie, but um, I'm not really a fan of the co-star, I guess, the uh, Marshall character from mm. uh, How I Met Your Mother. But again, yeah, <laughs> this is another movie that I know it's very L.A., but... Um, you could have replaced this with Yes Man and it wouldn't have batted an eye. So we really have no comment here. Now, the next movie I have talked at tremendous length also about Nightcrawler. I can probably say on this list, it might be my favorite on the list. That's high praise. Yeah, I, I mean, and I'm, I'm certainly very self-aware of the movie. Like it's, mm. you know, it, it's certainly an obvious movie that somebody in journalism would like, or maybe use as like a token to be like, this is what you don't do. Like it's, but at the same time, there's a lot to it that I feel is very LA in so many different ways that I could probably devote an entire episode to it. But, um, you know, and again, the, the, I mean, the locations are very, excuse me, the locations are very real. And, on top of that, you know, it's it's a combination of a warning, but also a just stark reality of folks that work here. I mean, like I, I know actual nightcrawlers that are brilliant professionals that are way better than Lou. Well, professionally better than Lou Bloom in terms of getting, you know, getting the scoop, if you will. I would argue they're on par. Um but even they're pretty self-aware and, and and definitely don't live up to the the kind of the darkness, if you will, of the character, no pun intended. But, um, you know, it, it's it, like I said, easy recommend. Um, I don't know if I've ever gotten your thoughts on the movie, actually. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I agree with a lot of your assessments. I think it's a really good, you know. Actually, I've, okay, I've only seen the movie once. And mm. I think on a second watch, I think I would have different opinions because I do know that I, I there were, yeah, suspension of disbelief, but there were a few times during the movie where I felt like you didn't need to go this far to make your point. Like, what was it? Um, so I think one of the, like, um, like, well, first of all, everybody kills it in the movie as an actor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Figuratively and literally, I guess. But... Um, it's a it's a very well done movie. It like on, on 
on like filmmaking grounds on IMDb ranking. It's really good. But for me, coming away from it, I just feel like, uh, you know, I'm not familiar with the director, but I don't know. I just feel like I, 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 there's things that I still think about when I, you know, when I think about that movie, what sticks out to me is, uh, you know, like spoiler alert, I guess, when the, the newscasters are watching footage of the home invasion in real time, live, like, there's, there's a few things, like, which is, like, really awkward. Like, there's a few things that, like, still jut out to me that are jarring. The ending, again, I really, I know, it's a movie. But the <laughs> ending is still kind of funky to me that, you know, one person is victimized and the, the other is not for plot armor, I guess. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's a great movie, but I think I, I need to watch it again because I, I still have some lingering questions. What's strange about the movie in terms of its appeal and, and some of it is just the the aesthetic choices they make in terms of I, I believe it was all shot on film so there's a lot of scenes that you can tell are very grainy and it just pops everything you see within a certain scene in a way that to anybody from LA especially somebody who grew up in the 90s like you and I that you, you you look at things in a way that is very recognizable in terms of like architecture and landscaping and very basic things, but it resonates, but then it puts on this kind of twisted element with the character of Lou Bloom, the way he dresses, the way he behaves, especially it touches on a lot of that timeless, a lot of those timeless qualities that LA is said to have. And I think too, like the simplicity of it, really helps in its favor like the fact that you don't have that many characters and you're meant to follow along with this character who you know the way i described it to sebastian was while it is a very different movie if you strip away all of the gotham city slash dc elements of joker theoretically you could get a version of nightcrawler um theoretically there's a few hmm. things you definitely have to disassociate but um the other thing with the movie too that always stands out to me is the music because you know the soundtrack or the score rather like it it's so simple and there's times where like it, it gets a little too on the nose of like like there's the one scene where he's talking to renee russo about you know the the prospect of joining a news team and you know that this guy has never had the ambition to join a news team ever in his life but the music swells and the way I've heard it described elsewhere is that the music almost sounds like a, it sounds like a nineties Disney film <laughs> when a character makes some kind of progress with their life where it's like, do, 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 do. Like it, it gets very, that's, that's, uh, that's really funny. You say that because, uh, the music, uh, James Newton Howard, mm -hmm. who does uh, you know, music for, and I'm just lost reading it here, but you know, he does some big hits, um, like, the Fugitive, The Dark Knight, obviously, uh, Space Jam, uh, but then like Peter Pan, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. So, you know, uh, James Newton Howard, um, I, I guess it's not safe to say that, you know, he has a background in like Disney movies or anything like that. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you just like uh, kind of unlocked a memory for me of like the, the music of that movie, because uh, that was definitely a strength. And it's really funny because you know, music makes the scene and like in reading about that movie as well. Apparently there's a discussion if Nightcrawler is considered a drama 
uh, a horror, a, I mean, a black comedy or yeah, a mm-hmm. horror. And it's just like, well, you know, music sets the tone for a lot of that. But um, yeah, I guess I'm of the camp that it's just seems like a thriller to me, but the music <laughs> does kind of throw you off sometimes. So uh, yeah, it's all very subjective, but it's uh, it's an ambiguity just makes it all the more interesting. Very much. And the other thing I'll note with the music before we move on to the next film, uh, the opening theme of the film, I'll put it this way. If, if you had to, if somebody had to present music to you and basically ask, when you think of L.A., would this stack up or would this match your mental approximation, visualization, audio, if you will, of what the city means, what its history is all about, what it stands for. There's this, there's a hipster doofus element to the music in the theme. And then there's like a sting of dread. And it it feels very much like the kind of hype you get from somebody that moves to LA thinking, oh, I'm going to be a star. And then they get here and they get, I don't know, robbed on their third day. Like it's, it has that kind of feeling, which, you know, I try not to make light of that, but it's very much, if you had to think of a, of an audio approximation of what idiosyncrasies of LA represent, that theme clocks it. And in the same vein, the end music, uh, which I believe is titled, if it bleeds, it leads. <laughs> I don't know. It's rollicking and it's, it has that kind of post post cataclysmic rush. And admittedly, it's a good song to listen to when you're barreling down a freeway, (laughs) Um, whether you're going up or down from L.A. to L.A. County or vice versa. Uh, But like, I don't know. Again, there's something with the music that definitely elevates it. And, you know, it's shot on film. I kind of lump it in the noir category of film, which I don't think we get enough of. Maybe that's something to bring up with Rachel down the line, given she's very much into noir style films. But speaking of noir films, I was not really a big fan of this one. Uh, Inherent Vice. Um, I actually haven't seen it, so I can't. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, I guess um, I remember, though, and maybe you could speak to this, too. It didn't seem like a very appealing movie to watch. It also just seemed kind of... Um, kind of try hard uh i you know paul thomas anderson love him love his movies i i'm probably more of a fan than others but at the same time um it didn't like nothing ever clicked for me to ever want to watch this movie like i don't know if like the casting was just over ambitious it's almost like an ensemble cast Mm -hmm. i don't know if just the premise is just too well yeah as it says here a little dense uh i didn't so um yeah i uh, haven't seen it yeah, I, I think I started watching it and then I I couldn't get through it. But I, I you hit it on the head with the try hard aspect because I that, that was the impression I got from the trailers and everything else promoting the film. Uh, I haven't read the book by Thomas Pynchon. I you're talking to somebody who's toyed with the idea of reading Gravity's Rainbow. And I, yeah, it, it, ultimately, the movie just wasn't for me. Um I will say, in in stark difference to Inherent Vice, I did see The Nice Guys. Yeah. It's an easy recommend. 
this is the kind of 70s L.A. movie that you would want to get into. And it doesn't feel placating in the way that like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, even though that's set in 69, close enough. Great film. Ryan Gosling's phenomenal. Russell Crowe is pretty hilarious. Like. What what more what more do you want? Yeah, and I think you hit it like again, nail on the head with the fact that um, they didn't even need to really point out that this was an LA movie. Um, when you have like two leads, like Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe, I mean, they the thing is, the movie didn't even feel like they did heavy lifting necessarily, but um, it's a good starting point to make a good movie, and you get the vibe of LA in the movie really well. So uh, again, yeah, another easy recommend. I think for me, the the humor was a little, um, what do I say, like hard to grasp at first, but well, I settled yeah. in. So I settled <laughs> in. I'm like, okay, so this is where we're going. So that's not that it's unaccessible. It's very accessible, actually. And it, it is a great watch. So yeah, another recommend. And it kind of bridges into the next four movies, which I, I, I have to say I have not seen the next four, but an obvious Russell Crowe L.A. movie that is painfully obviously not on this list would be la confidential mm-hmm. uh, part of me is like hey yad baka why what, what's what's the deal um yeah it makes me curious you know that people put this list there because again and if you haven't seen the last four neither have i because i really haven't um you know we have movies la story a steve martin 1981 supernatural romantic comedy sure um beverly hills cop uh, apparently a classic but i i am convinced that it's like a secret from like gen x that like i've never met a millennial that has seen it so like it's like some weird gen x conspiracy to like say that it was a good movie or funny um but <laughs> beverly hills got pretty self-explanatory um and then another film noir that double indemnity um 1944 and you know a black and white thumbnail you know where this is going i'm sure it's fine but, uh, you know, just per the earlier noir commentary, um, I guess you just have to dive in. And, uh, and I know I'm blowing through these fast. But again, having really seen these, Fletch with Chevy Chase. And um, the name is not a very appealing name. It just sounds like a, it's just like if I saw this poster, if I saw Chevy Chase and the word Fletch, I'm like, yeah, no, not really <laughs> sold. And um, the fact that Chevy Chase is an asshole makes me not want to uh, <laughs> dive into that. Although I will say Caddyshack um, is, a, is a great movie. But again, yeah, for, uh, I guess, technically L.A. movies, when, you know, for our conversation, there's many more that could have been on this list. You could have put Quentin Tarantino's whole filmography. Pulp Fiction is an L.A. movie. Reservoir mm-hmm. Dogs is an L.A. movie. For starters... You know, you if you want to go down the Chinatown route, I guess you could include the two Jakes. I don't know, but um, <laughs> oh god, I <laughs> oh I did see that. Oh, it's not good. Is it good? I haven't seen the two Jakes. Just say no. Just say no. Okay. It, I I I was anticipating it because I love Chinatown, but man, oh man, ooh ooh. It's I, I cannot recommend that whatsoever. I, I would recommend against it. Okay. Uh, and I know I'm, I'm doing my best to make sure this hep- this episode is not a repeat of the Hall trilogy episode. But as underrated as I think it is and, and as much as it didn't get a lot of great reviews when it came out, 
Velvet Buzzsaw is so ridiculous in how it was marketed and what we actually got that I think it's secretly a genius film in that it is very campy. The editing is very awkward, but I think that's very much the point of having a film that's intended to be like a supernatural thriller poking fun at the pretentiousness of LA's kind of art community easily available on Netflix. You know, I can safely say it's a high recommend for me. It's definitely not as good as Nightcrawler, but you know, again, if the stuff that people hate about LA minus the traffic and the freeways is, is epitomized in that film. So I, I know Sebastian was like, I don't think I'd check this out. It's still, again, it, it, it pokes fun at the things you don't like and it pays off ultimately. Um, but, uh, there was another LA movie I was going to very quickly mention and now it's escaped me. Uh, and I know we've gone, we've gone over. Um, no, um, <laughs> Um, I mean, yeah, there's a few that I could think of, but well, that I didn't think of, but I know me and you have like, we could probably compile our own 25 list, you know, with some very glaring omissions. The one that does come to mind that I'll very quickly mention, and I'll essentially repeat what I said the last time I brought it up on the show, um, and I'll be just as brief, uh, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Mm, yeah. Holy cow. I was not ready. I was not ready. I was not ready. The jump scare, which is easily the best jump scare, in my opinion, in all of Hollywood history aside. Um, you know, if anything, based on everything I know about Sunset Boulevard, that movie ought to be in contention for being the noteworthy successor of Sunset Boulevard in terms of having a film that pokes fun at kind of the the uh the mythology of la and it's and hollywood and all of its obsession with fame and stardom very quickly here and again i uh, so out of curiosity's sake i typed in google best la movies you know like what is going to mm -hmm. pop up and of course um well google puts on move put like shows me movies that were really it's like i guess in chronological order so stuff i've never heard of stuff that doesn't seem mainstream that's funny. Under the dramas about L.A., Nightcrawler is number one. But mm. you know, there's some classics that totally missed. Okay, I have to say, includes Fast and Furious 9. But, like, Fast and Furious, the first one, the, the Fast and the Furious, is actually a good movie. It's worth a watch. It's totally, with all the ridiculousness that franchise is, it's totally a different vibe. And it is very L.A. Um you know, going through this, I also see, you know, as you mentioned, off air, straight out of Compton, um, that talking, talking about, you know, movies in the vein of Boys in the Hood showing about life in South Central. Um, La La Land. I don't know if that's polarizing, but I loved La La Land and mm. I never wanted to watch it. I'm like, who am I becoming? But um, it is an LA movie, yes. Like, oh, they dance in Griffith Observer or Griffith Park. Like, okay, yeah, sure. And it's like it's Hollywood, but um, it has a nice message. Anybody who uh, wants to make it can relate. And then, like, you got Ryan Gosling's Drive. So I guess Ryan Gosling is really kind of an LA actor here, the same way I guess Dylan Hall has been uh, one or two. But mm -hmm. again, like the list, 
there is an enormous list of movies, um, you know, based in LA, about LA. I don't know if you're a fan of the uh, 2004 Best Picture winner Crash. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, back then we didn't know. Uh, and then <sighs> I see, you know, Mulholland Drive and such. But yeah, we can devote a, a part two to this podcast, I'm sure. But as far as glaring emissions, I think, you know, Chinatown, Pulp Fiction, uh, I think we've we've kind of covered the big ones because, again, yeah, the, those are extremely glaring. So, Yad Baka, maybe next time. And uh, another movie that came to mind when you brought up the Griffith Observatory, which I should note, La La Land, still need to watch it. I know my folks saw it. They weren't fans, but you know what? I, I feel like, you know, it feels essential at this point that, Based on who I am and where I'm from, I, I need to check it out. But on the point of Griffith Observatory, I'll just quickly say Rebel Without a Cause. That is an all-timer. Um, and it's a good movie, too. But also, when it comes to LA movies, all-timer. And I know it's before our time, but it's very relevant. I don't know. Like, I, like even like recently, I was watching the Sopranos episode where they did a, 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 a or Christopher Moltisanti is trying to become uh, an actor or a screenwriter. And he acts out like one of the final scenes from that movie. And it's just mm-hmm. like that movie has such lasting power. Um, it's a classic. I yeah. could just say it's a classic like 10 times over, but it, that's a perfect one. Definitely. Um, I think I saw that in like an AP U.S. history class. And I remember the reasons why it was essentially like, oh, if you want an idea on like the alienation of America's youth and the 1950s here you go and i mean yeah i mean hey better than catcher in the rye any day in my opinion but um <laughs> yeah <laughs> yad Baka. where's friday you're welcome kenny well i guess on that on that note uh on that cheery note uh i will leave everyone with a cheery note uh because you had mentioned Chevy Chase, and we have to. I have to end this off with a immortal quote from him from Caddyshack, which is: "The Zen philosopher Basho once wrote, a flute with no holes is not a flute. A donut with no hole is a Danish. He was a funny guy." You've been listening to Mars on Life. Look up our show on Instagram and Twitter by searching at Mars on Life Show, and give us a follow. Tune in to the latest episodes and bonus content from our show wherever podcasts are found, including Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Also, don't forget to head on over to the official Mars on Life YouTube channel to like and subscribe our work. This show's artwork, Happy Mars, is by Zachary Urberic, while our intro and outro is Space Explorers by Kevin McLeod. If you keep going... You'll make it to Mars.